Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Welcome back to the latest Working From Home edition of Cases and Controversies. We're coming off a historic week, the court's first ever remote and live stream arguments. And we're here to bring you the last sneak peek of the season, looking at the second week of these remote arguments, including a couple cases that could factor into the 2020 election. But before we preview those, including the Trump subpoena cases, Kimberly, how do you think that first week of live streaming went? Um, well, I guess it could have been worse. Mm -hmm. It could have been better too, for (laughs) sure. Uh, It definitely started out pretty strong. We had a couple of unmuting issues. Justice Sotomayor. I'm sorry, Chief. Ms. Ross, picking up on where you were right Justice Sotomayor. I am sorry, Chief. Did it again. Um, But Chief Justice Roberts kept things moving along, cutting off the lawyers in order to get to the next justice's questions. I think it's also worth taking a step back. Thank you, counsel. Uh, Justice Breyer? (laughs) Same question. Statement that the groups have to make. Uh, But in any event... Thank you, counsel. Justice Breyer? calls from family members, but don't want to be distracted by... Justice Ginsburg? And as a reminder to listeners, in addition to these being the first remote and live stream arguments, the court also used a new format, justices asking questions in order of seniority, starting with the chief and then going to Justice Thomas and so forth until the end with Justice Kavanaugh. And remember, Jordan, we wondered what was going to happen when Justice Thomas's turn came up. Would he Mm -hmm. be like, "Mm, pass? Was he going to say anything? What happened? Well, he said more than that. Uh, Thomas, who, of course, is known for hardly ever asking questions at oral argument, actually questioned the lawyers in every one of the four cases during the first week. So, Justice Thomas? Uh, Yes, uh, Ms. Ross, a couple of questions. Thank you. Um, Thank you, counsel. Justice Thomas? uh, Mr. Michelle, uh, the respondent. Justice Thomas? Uh, Thank you, Chief Justice. Uh, Mr. Stewart? uh, Justice Thomas? Thank you, Mr. Martinez. Uh, and it wasn't just that he spoke, but he asked questions that other justices seemed to think were ones worth exploring, piggybacking off of his questions when it would come to be their turn, including Justices Breyer and Ginsburg, for example, starting off by saying, you know, following up on Justice Thomas's question. And so it seemed that the justices, anyway, thought that his questions were good ones. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he keeps questioning uh, when things go back to normal. Uh But there was one notable thing that happened on Wednesday that might impact how Chief Justice Roberts views this whole live streaming thing. Oh, boy. And what the FCC (laughs) has said is that when the subject matter of the call ranges to the topic, then the call is transformed. Are we talking about that? I mean, I think we have to. We have to talk about it. Okay. Well, here it goes. There's... uh... There's just no other way to say it. A toilet flushed during the argument. That's what happened. (laughs) That's right. Well, that's what it sounded like anyway. Uh, This was in the argument over the First Amendment and robocalls, Barr versus American Association of Political Consultants. And the arguments that day had already gone off the rails a little bit. Yeah, the first argument that day in the Obamacare contraception case uh, went way long. It was like an hour and 40 minutes for the argument. Yeah, so, you know, the chief was probably already like, man, this is not going well. And then um, he might have wished it had gone the same way that the first argument had gone in this uh, (laughs) robocall argument 
after this way long argument, uh, well, what happened? Briar disappeared for a bit. Uh, he came back and starts making a robocall joke. Mr. Briar. Yeah, thank you. I'm sorry. The telephone started to ring. And it cut me off the call, and I don't think it was a robocall, <laughs> and uh, we got it straightened out. Uh, we should probably also mention that Justice Ginsburg participated in arguments that day from the hospital uh, after a procedure for a benign gallbladder issue. Yeah, uh, she did not have any unmuting issues either, so total beast right. there, doing arguments from the hospital. And by the time you're listening to this, Justice Ginsburg is home and doing well, according to the court's press office. But okay, Jordan, back to less pressing matters. During Roman Martinez's argument is when we heard the fateful flush. The subject matter of the call ranges to the topics. The subject matter of the call ranges to the topics. The subject matter of the call ranges to the topics. Wow, what can we say? Obviously, we now need to do a multi-part investigative podcast series on who the flusher was. Um, did it come from Justice Ginsburg's hospital room? Was Breyer still feeling mischievous? Did any of the younger textualists on the court take this whole live streaming thing a little too literally? The <laughs> questions just keep going on from there. Hey, Jordan, uh, I know this is pretty funny, but on a serious note, what do we think that this means for live streaming in the future? Does this pretty much put the nail in the coffin? I don't think it does uh, for multiple reasons. Um, for one thing, let's say the court is still remote. If anything, I think that is an argument for doing video because one would hope that that would <laughs> act as a deterrent, right? One would hope, one would hope. Um, but on the flip side, if the court's going back to having arguments in the court, actually for similar reasons, um, you know, you would think that being in the courtroom would also act as a deterrent to not flushing a toilet. You know, once, once it goes back into the courtroom, the fact that a toilet flushed when they were at home doesn't mean you can't live stream the arguments in court, right? Yeah, but don't we think this is the exact kind of thing, kind of spectacle that the Chief Justice was hoping would not occur? I guess. I mean, the arguments, right, always, I guess there was never really one single argument or at least one good one, but the line was always the justices are worried about, you know, basically getting made fun of and people taking things out of context. But this was just like something they did. No one's, <laughs> it, we're just, It's very you know, much in context. <laughs> literally all these guys had to do was not flush a toilet. <laughs> okay, so uh, we've already spent too much time on the toilet. Let's get into the final sneak peek of the term. All right, let's do it. So the first case of the week on Monday, May 11th is one we've talked about before on Cases and Controversies, McGirt versus Oklahoma. That's right. And on a recent episode, we spoke to Riaz Kanji about that one. He'll, of course, be arguing for the Creek Nation in the McGirt case on Monday to kick things off. He's one of the four lawyers arguing in that dispute, which implicates whether the Creek's 19th century reservation is still intact. And that question raises all sorts of consequences for state versus federal jurisdiction in the eastern part of the state if it turns out that that land is still technically a reservation. Okay, so you said four lawyers are arguing. Why so many lawyers in this one? So it's a two-on-two. -two. There's Kanji and McGirt's lawyer, Ian Gershengorn, on the one side. And then on the other side, it's the Solicitor General's office, represented by Edwin Needler, a longtime uh, advocate, of course, like Gershengorn is too. And then the state of Oklahoma, repped by Mithin Mansinghani, also a former Cases and Controversies podcast guest, on the other side. So there's those two on one side, and then the government guys on the other side. Well, besides being like 
five hours long with the new format. Mm-hmm. Is this just going to be a repeat of the Murphy case from last term? Uh, so we'll see. This definitely the issue. It's the same issue that's uh, coming up. So, like Patrick Murphy's case last term, Jim C. McGirt, the defendant in this case says the state didn't have jurisdiction to prosecute him because he says his crime took place on Creek Reservation land. And so that raises that question going beyond just McGirt's case, like it did in Murphy's case, about whether that land is still reservation land, which has all those implications for criminal jurisdiction, taxes, and regulations in the region. So there's a lot of outside interest watching this one. It's, you know, not often you see a criminal case with oil and gas interests weighing in, but there's a lot going on here. Well, I'm guessing the chief is going to want to keep this one moving along efficiently. Uh, Definitely, especially because McGirt isn't the only argument that day. And next up on Monday is a couple of consolidated cases, Our Lady of Guadalupe. Kimberly, what's happening in that one? Well, this is kind of a follow-up case. A lot of theme from uh, the May arguments is that these are Mm follow-ups. But this one is not from last term. This one was from way back in 2012 when the court decided a case called Husana Tabor. In that case, the court said there was a ministerial exception to employment discrimination laws, which basically has the effect of letting religious employers not have to abide by rules that other employers might have to. So um, here I'm thinking about anti-discrimination laws and things of that sort. In this case, the lower court actually interpreted that ministerial provision pretty narrowly and found that Catholic school teachers weren't ministers, Mm -hmm. and so the school wasn't immune from suit under the ministerial exception. So this last case was from 2012, Kimberly. The court's a little different now. What are we going to be looking for at the argument? Do we think the religious employer is going to win again? Well, the Roberts Court has been pretty protective of religious claims, but Breyer and Kagan have come on board for many of those rulings. So we'll have to see if this is the latest in a lopsided ruling in favor of the religious claims or if this is going to be another 5-4. Then on Tuesday, we have back-to-back arguments in what might be the most closely watched cases of the session, maybe even of the term for some people. These are arguments over subpoenas from Congress and prosecutors for President Trump's financial records. So what's the difference between these cases, Jordan? There are actually three cases. Two are from the House of Representatives seeking Trump's records, and the third case is from Manhattan state prosecutors. The two House cases are going to be argued together in the first hour, and then that Manhattan DA case is going to go in the second hour. Of course, we did a deep dive on these cases with two lawyers who used to work in the Solicitor General's office who filed briefs in both cases, so be sure to check out that episode for a deep dive into the Trump cases if you haven't yet. So Jordan, tell us what's at stake here. What's the difference between the two cases? Well, as we all know, unlike other presidents in recent decades anyway, President Trump refused to release his tax returns. So this case involves actually more financial records than just tax returns, but it does seem that people might be interested in what any of those records might reveal. And so in terms of the difference between the two cases, in terms of the result anyway, it seems that if Trump loses the House cases, then that could lead to some of his financial information becoming public before the 2020 election. And then And with the Manhattan DA case, that one involves a grand jury investigation, which is secret, of course. And so in that second one, even if Trump were to lose, the impact of that loss might not be seen for the president as quickly as the House cases, at least as far as public disclosures go. So what are you going to be watching out for in the arguments, Jordan? These types of cases involving investigations into presidents have resulted in unanimous decisions from the court in the past. 
famously in cases involving Presidents Nixon and Clinton, both times ruling against the president's claims that essentially they don't have to comply with legal process because they're the president. Of course, this case is different in multiple ways. For one thing, it involves seeking information from third parties about information before Trump was president, but still at the argument, I'll be listening for whether this seems like a case where the court is again going to make a unanimous statement like in the Nixon and Clinton cases, or if maybe this incredibly political case is going to take on a particularly political dimension at the Supreme Court, too. And a late-breaking development in this one that we'll also be watching for at the argument is the justices asked for a supplemental briefing on whether the case can even be heard in court under the political question doctrine. Uh, So the political question doctrine um, for our listeners is just uh, asking whether or not the question is one that the founders would have wanted to leave up to the other branches, the more political branches, um, rather than to the courts. So that could be one way that the justices decide not to weigh into this very controversial issue. That's right. And so on the last day of the session, the last arguments of the term also have some 2020 election implications, maybe even more so than in these Trump subpoena cases. That's these so-called faithless electors. Kimberly, what's going on there? Faithless electors or rogue electors. So, Whoa, I like that. That's more fun. <laughs> the court is going to hear two cases from Washington State and Colorado about whether the state's electoral college, quote, electors have to cast their votes for the candidate that won the popular vote in the state. Um, it, Here, we have a number of electors who decided that they didn't want to vote for the popular vote winner and instead voted for other candidates. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. So these people are allowed to vote for whoever they want, no matter what the voters in the state decide. Well, that's really what the court is going to decide. So 10 electors either tried or did vote for someone else in the 2016 election, and that's the most in any presidential election ever. And so, so far in the nation's history, we haven't seen any of these faithless electors change the outcome of a presidential election. But who knows? The Electoral College is certainly very controversial these days, and there's a lot of division within the parties. Yeah, if there was a year for that to happen, you would think, you know, 2020 would be a a pretty good candidate, just given everything else that's been happening. But yeah, if there's ever a year for something um, incredibly crazy to happen, it's 2020. Exactly. So either way, it's uh, quite an argument to hear for the court's season finale. So we'll, of course, be watching that one closely, too. And on our next episode, we're going to be talking about those Colorado and uh, Washington cases for our deep dive episode. Very cool. Looking forward to that. And until then, you can all follow along with the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. Taxes and accounting are complicated, but finding a good tax podcast shouldn't be. I'm Siri Belusu, and I'm Amanda Icone. Listen to Talking Tax, the podcast that breaks down all of these issues on a weekly basis. Every Thursday, Talking Tax will explain the latest issues for you. From what Congress is working on, to legal rulings, to the global digital tax debate. Download and subscribe to Talking Tax wherever you get your podcasts.